This episode of Ask Science Mike was made possible by SaneBox. Clear your email inbox in just 20 minutes by visiting sanebox.com slash asksciencemike. And by Pinatagrams. Why send a card when you can send a pinata? Learn more at pinatagrams.com. Gluten, guns, and unchristian love. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I just got back from the Wild Goose Festival and had a lot of fun meeting and greeting so many of you who listen to the program and taking your live questions. And man, is there a lot coming up in the next few months. I'm so excited to tell you about. We'll do that right after this song. So what do you say? Let's get it started. Okay, I want to start the show this week with a few really, really cool announcements. Um, and the first one, I'm just I'm out of my mind with excitement over. There's an organization called BioLogos, and they specialize in helping educate Christians about the theory of evolution. So they're a pro-science organization that accepts evolution uh, and Darwin's theory of evolution as, as describing how the diversity of life on Earth appeared. One of my favorite resources to point people to who have questions about evolution. And we're going to partner together to put on a special episode of Ask Science Mike. So here's what you need to do. If you have questions about evolution or how evolution integrates with Christianity or the Bible, send a question into the program. But instead of using hashtag Ask Science Mike, you'll use hashtag Ask BioLogos. That's B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S. You can do that on Twitter. You can do that on YouTube or SoundCloud. Uh, or you can simply uh, send a question in through AskScienceMike.com and just include the hashtag AskBioLogos. We're going to assemble all those questions together. And then I'm going to turn those questions over to the scientists and experts, like actual PhDs, actual researchers, to answer your questions about evolution That'll be a future episode. I'm so excited about it, but it will not happen if you don't send in your evolution-centered questions for the scientist at BioLogos. Again, that's hashtag AskBioLogos, and I'll have more information about that on AskScienceMike.com. Also, we have officially started the pre-order campaign for my upcoming book, Finding God in the Waves. Uh, that is a book about my story of losing my faith, becoming an atheist, coming back to faith through a mystical experience, and then trying to make sense of all that through science. It comes out September 13th. Uh, pre-orders are actually going pretty well, so thanks to all of you who have pre-ordered. But if you go to findinggodintheways.com, not only can you learn more about the book, you can learn more about the pre-order bonuses. So right now, anyone who pre-orders is entered in a drawing to win an early advanced copy of the book and a one-on-one -on -one call with me to talk about the book. We're going to draw one of those names every month between now and lunch. Launch, not lunch. 
Oh, man. Anyway, between now and launch. Uh, so really excited about that. We're also going to announce additional pre-order bonuses. So some of those you'll hear about in the next week or, or two. We're about to announce all the tour dates uh, that we have so far for the tour this fall. I'll be going city to city to promote the book through a bunch of Ask Science Mike live events. So I can't wait to see you at that. And uh, really exciting stuff on Finding God in the Waves. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like my entire future hinges on this book. So <laughs> I'm a little nervous at this point because this is my first book and I don't know what to expect and if anyone will buy it or not. Uh, but I really think it's a good book. Worked really hard on it. Now, also, we're getting together in September in Denver and Chicago uh, for October uh, for the Liturgist Gathering. So we're going to get together and talk about faith and doubt and worship together with uh, Michael and Lisa Gunger doing music. It's really beautiful. Tickets are on sale now. Tickets are selling, especially in Chicago. Chicago is going to get uh, sold out pretty quick here. So go ahead and, and move there. Denver is not selling quite as well. Uh, so if you've been thinking about attending, uh, go ahead and get your tickets. So we make sure we have a Denver gathering happen. Uh, and finally, the last thing I want to announce here at the top of the program, uh, sorry to have like announcements first thing, but these are all really interesting, worthy things in my opinion. You know, we've been working on these together groups on Facebook. So if you're uh, listen to our show uh, or the Liturgist podcast and you think you're the only one and you don't fit in at church or you can't find a church or whatever, uh, we've started these Facebook groups called Together. And we just added a bunch of new cities based on people asking for them. So if you uh, want to check out Together or haven't yet, or you checked it out but your city wasn't available, just go to AskScienceMike.com, click on any episode, and then on the right hand on that little sidebar, there'll be a red square that says Together. If you click on that, you can see all the cities we have so far or request a city that we don't have yet. Okay, so that's Together. So remember, we've got hashtag AskBioLogos for you to send in your evolution questions for a special episode of Ask Science Mike. We've got the Finding God in the Waves pre-order campaign in full swing, so go to FindingGodInTheWaves.com to learn more. Uh, we'd love to see you at the Liturgist Gathering in Denver or Chicago. Go to TheLiturgist.com slash gathering, or if you just want to connect with other people who are working through science and faith and doubt, uh, check out together. All of those will be linked and more information can be found at AskScienceMike.com. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Kathleen, and I have a question for you about gluten allergies. It seems that in the last decade or so, there has been a considerable upswing in the number of people who have a gluten allergy or a gluten intolerance. Less than 10 years ago, I had never heard the term celiac disease, and I probably didn't even know what gluten was. Presently, though, I could name about 20 of my friends, family members, or acquaintances who have celiac disease or some form of a gluten intolerance. And these people are not children or teenagers, but adults who have consumed gluten their entire lives and now find that it gives them digestive or other physiological issues. I've read that allergies can develop at any point in your life, but I do not know, for example, an abundance of people who are suddenly lactose intolerant as grown adults. So my question for you is, has there been a considerable change in the way our food, specifically our grains, are grown, produced, and manufactured such that our guts can no longer digest them? Or is there another reason adults suddenly find themselves ordering from the gluten-free section of the menu? Thanks so much for what you do. 
That's a great question. I'm going to start with my usual disclaimer that I hate answering food science questions uh, because you're entering the darkest corners of biochemistry and complexity uh, because you're you're combining biochemistry with uh, large-scale social science and environmental science. When you ask how and why our reaction to food changes, oh man, are you in the deep end of the data pool and... Um, so I'm going to give my best answer to this question based on my understanding and my research, and I am fully expecting a scientist or two to write in and correct me where I got it wrong, and I'll probably do a you know a correction based on that. So here's what I, I am relatively confident in based on my research. Number one, almost all allergies are on the rise in the West. Uh, We're getting more allergic to things. One theory about why that is, is related to our very high levels of sanitation. So basically, uh, we're so clean in the West, so free of parasites, so free of bacteria, that uh, if you could envision our immune system as a security force, it gets paranoid now. It's like looking for false positives all the time. That's one theory, or one, excuse me, one hypothesis that I've seen uh, that I, I don't think is in any way universally regarded as accurate, but that's one possible explanation for the overall rise in allergies in the West. Now, uh, both celiac disease and non-celiac gluten intolerance are on the rise. About one in a hundred people now have celiac disease, and about maybe one in thirty-three uh, would be clinically diagnosed with non-celiac gluten intolerance. Uh, now, everything I've seen, and based on the science I read, this rise does not seem to be linked to the way we are producing our food. It's not that we have uh, radically altered food chemistry in regards to wheat especially. Instead, what many health scientists believe is that this increase in gluten intolerance is linked to other health factors especially those that correlate with the way that we process grains into sugar in the bloodstream. So what do I mean? We are more overweight and more obese as a society. We have higher cholesterol. We have high blood pressure. We have increased incidences of cancers and of type 2 diabetes. And as your risk factor for all those increases, the potential for you to have adverse reactions to processing wheat uh, and other grains increases. Uh, now, because we have this significant increase in, in wheat allergy or, or wheat allergen-related disorders, a lot of people are making the assumption that some digestive issue they have is related to wheat. And you have like 30% of adults reporting that they are trying or would like to try a gluten-free diet. Now, notice the difference in numbers here. One in 100 have celiac disease, maybe as high as one in 33 have a non-celiac gluten intolerance, right? But one in three almost are wanting to try a gluten-free diet. So you have a huge disparity in people who are actually suffering a clinical disorder and people who are just thinking I should drop gluten. And that's kind of more your 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 buzzword uh, reaction to food science, the stuff I get afraid of. Now, if you think you have celiac disease or uh, gluten intolerance, you need to see a doctor. 
Okay, you need to see a doctor. You need to see a doctor uh, and get diagnosed. You shouldn't self-diagnose and just put yourself on a gluten-free diet because uh, some studies have come out and shown that gluten-free diets can create deficiencies in fiber intake, vitamins, and minerals because if you eat whole grain wheat, gives you a lot of fiber, it gives you a lot of vitamins, it gives you a lot of minerals. So if you're going gluten-free, you want to do that in concert with a doctor and or a nutritionist who can help you compensate in your diet for missing out on those things. There's nothing about gluten that is intrinsically bad for human beings. It's not some evil chemical. It's a naturally occurring substance uh, in a a normal, balanced human diet. Okay, so gluten's not the bad guy unless you have a genuine allergic reaction to it, which one in 100 people do with celiac disease or one in 33 do uh, in terms of a non-celiac gluten intolerance. So don't self-diagnose. Don't self-diagnose, guys. I'm telling you, and girls and non-gender conforming people, uh, you really want to work with a medical professional when you think you have allergies. It's a pain. There's copays. I get it. Uh, But you better be safe than sorry before you make radical diet changes because fiber is an incredibly important component of digestive health and having uh, a good movement of food through your system with consistency, if you know what I mean. Fiber is your friend, not the enemy. (laughs) So that's a really great question. Yes, there's a rise, but it's still not some societal epidemic. Uh, It's relatively rare, Uh, you know, as high as, you know, three and a half to four percent of the population has a allergic reaction of some kind to gluten. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Mike. I'm sure you get tired of hearing this, kidding, but I really want to thank you and Gunger for any form of faith I carry now. I was raised a pastor's kid and lost my faith in college. I am not married to an ex-Jew and agnostic and the mother of a 16-month-old daughter. I don't know if you meant I am now married. Um, which would make more sense with the sentence, but anyway. So, I have recently found my way back to church via the Liturgist podcast. However, I have found a home in church where we disagree on several fundamentals of faith. This has not been an issue for me as I am able to filter teachings through my own understanding of God. My struggle, however, is I feel like I cannot raise my daughter here. What she will be taught there is not in line with my beliefs. Her journey will already be a struggle, she will have competing messages from parents, grandparents, aunts, and cousins. Is there a constructive way to help her understand that the messages she is receiving, particularly about her father and grandparents going to hell, is not necessarily as clear-cut as she is being told? How do you handle these mixed messages? Or is there a progressive church in Orange County you can recommend? Wow, great question. And uh, I understand (laughs) After I kind of went through my faith deconstruction, I continued attending a Southern Baptist church for quite some time, uh, and I felt like I could parse through its teachings and and um, thoughtfully push back on what didn't fit. Um, but I kept going there with my children, and one of my daughters uh, tr- tried to lead one of her Jewish friends to Christ because she told her if she didn't, she would go to hell. 
and uh, also came home one day and we were talking and she talking about what she wanted to be when she grew up and I did the famous American parent line, well, you can be anything you want to be. And she said, well, Dad, I could never be a pastor, right? Because in the church we were attending, uh, women couldn't be leaders of the church. And that's when I realized this was not the best environment for my children uh, because of, of what they were getting. So first of all, I don't think we should necessarily plant ourselves in faith communities we fundamentally disagree with or that don't hold uh, disagreement on core issues as a core value, right? So I go to a very theologically conventional Methodist church, but there's a lot of grace and openness on uh, ideas about theology in that church and how children are taught. So the one thing is you may not be in a church that's actually safe for you and your family, especially if they're telling your child that their father is going to hell. That, uh, boy, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. So uh, I wrote about the church in my upcoming book, Finding God in the Waves, and why I love it again. And in that chapter, I kind of talked about the two things you need in a faith community. One is your church needs to affirm you exactly as you are exactly as you are. Let me say that again. Your church needs to affirm you exactly as you are, but your church needs to also challenge you to become who God is making you to be. Okay. Uh, and that will not involve, for example, praying the gay away. (laughs) That's not what I mean by who God is making you to be. How can you be a force of healing and peace in the world? How can you be a source of greater love? That's what your church should challenge you to become. And it sounds like you might not be in that kind of environment for you. That church might be safe for someone else. That church may challenge someone else, but it doesn't fit you and your family. Now, in terms of your kids, it's okay to talk to your children about the fact that different people believe different things, especially when they're old enough to ask why. So my kids know what I believe about God. They know that it's in some ways different than what their mom believes about God, which is different than what their Mimi or their pops or their grandmama or their papa believes about God. And we talk about the different things different people believe and why. It's okay for you to tell your children what you believe, especially when they're too young to parse through multiple narratives. But if you want to save them a lot of difficulty and angst as they grow, You've got to equip them to evaluate different ideas about God and find the ones that will fit the image of God that they carry. Now, you're in luck. There happen to be a couple of churches I do actually know about in Orange County that may be a better fit. First of all, one of my best friends is the Reverend Sarah Heath, and she just uh, started uh, a new uh, commission? What do you call them in the Methodist Church? I should know. I'm 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 a Methodist. Anyway, uh, she just became the pastor of the Costa Mesa First United Methodist Church, and uh, she's going to be making that a, an open, exciting uh, Christian community. So you could check that out. Also, I've heard from one of my patrons on Patreon about a place called the Table Orange County, which you can find at thetableoc.com, which is another. Uh, open progressive spiritual community in Orange County. So uh, maybe give those a shot. See if it fits better for you and your family. Uh, Whatever it is, we've got to resist this notion 
of planting ourselves in spiritual communities that reject us or marginalize us or traumatize us, right? It's one thing to to have uh, a sense of unity in the church, which is great. But I actually think denominations are an okay thing. If you took the the Presbyterians and the Catholics and the Baptists and they had to all be together on Sunday morning, they'd probably strangle each other. So I think it's okay for you to find one of the many streams of Christianity, and there are hundreds today where you can fit and be a part of Christian community and service without feeling like you're dying a little bit every Sunday. Church should be a source of inspiration and a source of life more abundant so that you can help heal the world. Well, in addition to my good friends on Patreon who make the show possible financially, Ask Science Mike is also supported by a few sponsors whose products I really like and enjoy personally. The first of those is SaneBox. I get a ridiculous amount of email, a truly staggering, absurd quantity of email, and I travel all the time, so it's always difficult to find those messages that are related to the work I need to get done. And I signed up for a service called SaneBox before they ever became a sponsor for the show, and it saved my email. So what SaneBox does is it's kind of like having a an AI robot personal assistant who goes through your email and sorts it and puts all the pertinent, important things from people you actually know that have action items in your inbox and puts everything else in a second folder called Sane Later that you can check out when you have time. What this means is, in my inbox, I only get 10 to 12 messages a day now while I get thousands of messages in my sane box. Now, I'm not talking about spam. Google already handles my spam for me. I'm talking about messages that are to me but are newsletters or things that don't require my immediate attention. Now, here's the great thing about SaneBox. It works with any email app and almost any email provider. You don't have to install any new software. All you've got to do is go to SaneBox.com slash ScienceMike to create an account get a free trial, and get a discount on your membership. They're going to do all those things if you use that URL, sanebox.com slash sciencemike. It takes almost no time to get started, and it will go through if your email inbox is a mess right now and clean it up for you. I'm telling you, Sanebox has my highest possible recommendation. I also want to tell you about Pinatagrams and their new product, minipolitics.com. That's really cool. Not only can you send a small pinata to a friend, uh, now you can actually send a pinata Donald Trump to somebody, which I think is hilarious. Uh, I've sent a few pinatagrams. I've received a few, and it is a blast. So go to pinatagrams.com or minipolitics.com to learn more. I'm, I tell you, it'll stand out more than any card or letter you could send someone. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, The Bible says we are completely changed after we become Christians. Does this mean unbelievers are incapable of truly loving anyone else? What are all the differences between a Christian and a non-Christian other than a belief in Jesus and a desire to follow his teachings and become more selfless and loving? Can non-Christians still love unselfishly? Is there any scientific evidence to support either answer? 
This is a fantastic question. It's a timely question, uh, and it relates to my own personal experiences. I grew up hearing that non-Christians couldn't truly love because they didn't have God. And uh, I believed that all the way until I became an atheist. And I noticed that once I no longer believed in God, I still loved people. In fact, in some ways, my love for my family and friends seemed more powerful and more authentic because I knew I had a limited amount of time to love them, that there was no heaven or eternal realm where I'd be with my family. I still felt like I loved my family. But then when I told my wife I didn't believe in God anymore, at first she didn't think I could still love her because she'd been taught the same thing about non-Christians being unable to love. Now here's the thing. We've got machines now that we can brain scan people. And non-believers love other people just as much as believers. There's no neurological distinction. Uh, If you look at other possible metrics for love, uh, you'll find, for example, that atheist marriages tend to be uh, more successful or or less likely to end in divorce than marriages between believers. So that's a data point, a scientific point we can look at that also supports the idea that non-Christians can love unselfishly, you know. The, the core of your question seems to be coming now. What are the difference between Christians and non-Christians? And that's Christians follow Jesus. Now, a lot of Christians like to make exclusive, exclusive or, or superior or exceptional claims about what it means to follow Christ. I'm not one of them. For me, I've chosen to follow Christ. I think there's a scientific case that that can be a beneficial decision, that it can result in you being a more loving a more peace-seeking, and a more forgiving person. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of Christians out there who are just real jerks, <laughs> right? And uh, I've got friends who are secularists who are also just, boy, they are real jerks. So uh, I'm not sure we can distill loving, non-loving, good person, non-person to cleanly map to Christian or non-Christian. I think the, one of the judges of the effectiveness of, worldview, of a worldview or a belief system is how it changes the way you behave in the world. And the fact is, I know people who are atheists who work hard to make the world a better place. And I know Christians who do the same. So if I'm going to judge people, which I am very reticent to do, I'm going to do so based on the fruit of their life and not the set of beliefs that... Um, cause them to make those actions. Uh, To me, both the gospel and atheism reveal the heart of a person and the way they behave towards others. Hi, Science Mike. Micah here from Chicago. Huge fan of the show. I actually have a pretty big question for you, but I feel like you're probably the... Uh, really the perfect person to answer it Uh, and this question involves data on guns Uh, the Orlando shooting actually just happened a few days ago and so all of us are really still reeling from that just horrible tragedy and um, I actually saw a video and posted it to my feed on Facebook uh, that Vox put out about the number of guns that are in circulation in the United States and how that potentially correlates with um, a greater number of gun deaths in the United States. 
some friends and proud gun owners responded to my post with more statistics about how gun ownership and concealed carry in certain states actually make those places safer. Um, With all the statistics that are out there about gun deaths, I was hoping that you could shed a little bit of light on first maybe the validity of the data that's presented in the video by Vox and also um, just about whether or not I guess you think that more guns equals more gun deaths. It seems like a pretty simple correlation to me, um, but it seems like anytime this conversation comes up, folks who are afraid that their Second Amendment rights might be stripped from them seem to say that no legislation or stricter gun laws will help the situation and there doesn't seem to be any other solutions provided except for, you know, fighting mental illness. Um, So I guess you could even, if you don't mind, even address mental instability and extremism and how that correlates. Again, I know it's a big question here, but just would really love to know your thoughts on gun ownership in the United States of America and whether or not you think we do have a gun problem here uh, or if it's, you know, just a problem with uh, mental illness or extremism and that kind of thing. So um, love to hear from you on this. Again, I appreciate everything you do. I absolutely love your show. It's been life changing for me. So thank you for taking the time to listen to my very long question. Well, this is the question of our time, isn't it? I mean, this is this is the big thing. Maybe one of the greatest points of polarization between our two major political parties in this country right now. I am so reticent to answer this question for a couple of reasons. One is this is a really diverse audience and it's it's left leaning, it's liberal leaning, but there are a significant number of conservatives in the audience and there are a significant number of gun owners in the science mic audience. Now let me go ahead and disclose my bias. I cannot stand guns. I don't like them. Uh if I could wave a magic wand and have them all disappear, I probably would do that. <laughs> so let's go ahead and admit my bias. Uh, but the fact is, most of the people in my family own guns. Most of the members of my family would typify the good guy with a gun argument. Uh, they're not going to use their gun in violence against other people. Many of them use guns in utilitarian functions. In fact, some of my family actually supplement their diets uh, via hunting. I live in rural communities. And it's, uh, for them, an enjoyable and affordable way to provide sustenance for their families. So let me go and disclose that this is a pretty complicated, messy thing for me. And also, we are talking about sociology here. Uh, So the amount of guns is a factor. Uh, And as you alluded to in your question, oftentimes we have more gun violence in states with higher gun regulation. But uh, a lot of times that's also tied to what? Poverty rates. It's also tied to education levels. So trying to tease out all the factors at play here is difficult. And that's why you can use a data-driven narrative 
to make a, a decent argument both for and against gun control. So I, I hate to start with disclaimers, but I have to. I have to. So uh, if you disagree with me and you after you hear my statistics, you'll push back with your own. Go ahead and send them into the show. I may do a follow-up uh, that include those as well. I've tried to look up some of the pro-gun statistics. Um, a lot of them don't come from super credible sources, but some do. And where I, I found credible cited sources, uh, I've included the pro-gun argument in my answer as well. But let's start with the biggest problem. The biggest problem is we don't have really good data on gun violence in this country. And that's because the NRA lobby pushed Congress to ban funding on gun research. The CDC can't evaluate gun crime. They can't get the funding, and nor can anyone else who relies on federal research dollars. And that is crazy. That is crazy that we can't even study the issue because of a gun lobby. That makes me sick to my stomach. If we're going to make better decisions, we need data. And I can't see this as anything else than an intentional conspiracy to obscure the topic by keeping us in the dark. And to give you some idea, in 2014, there were 33,804 car deaths in America and 33,636 firearm deaths. And we do use federal funds to study automobile deaths and to make cars safer, right? And the reason um, these numbers are so close is because automobile deaths as a percentage of population have been falling dramatically uh, for as long as we've had automobiles, basically, since the 1920s. And that's partially driven by research. So the fact that we can't study guns is a big deal. I also want to note, and this is important, violent crime including gun crime, is already in decline in the United States. It's going down. So that's an important note uh, that gun advocates would want to point out, that even though we have more and more guns, uh, we, we are seeing a decrease in gun violence. But we're not, that, that's, we don't know why that's happening, and we haven't tried anything. There's no legislative component to that. Uh, kind of the, the, the thing to me typifies America's approach to guns is we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> uh, so let's think of a few ideas related to gun crime. Maybe first, uh, first of all, let's let's admit something. Sometimes good guys with guns actually stop bad guys from committing crimes or violent crimes. It does happen. There's a liberal narrative that that never happens. That's false. But let's talk about how often it happens. Good guys stopping bad guys using guns is outnumbered two to one by accidental gun deaths. So for every one good guy that stops a bad guy, two people die from a gun accident, uh, including an average of about a person a week who is shot by a toddler. Let me say that again. About a person a week is shot and killed by a toddler in the United States. So that's accidental deaths. Well, how do good guys with guns compare to criminal gun homicides? Well, there are 34 criminal gun homicides for every one good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy. 34 to 1. And in terms of gun suicides, there are 78 suicides via gun 
for every one person who stops a bad guy with a gun. So two to one accidental gun deaths, 34 to one criminal gun homicides, two good guys, and 78 to one uh, gun suicides. Now, let's talk about gun suicides. That's a problem that disproportionately affects white men. And let's talk about criminal gun homicides that overwhelmingly affects black men. Uh, these are these, This is a serious cause of death in our society. And the fact is, you're way more likely to accidentally kill yourself or someone else with a gun if it's in your home than you are to stop a bad guy. And you're much, 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 much more likely to die as a part of a domestic disturbance if there is a gun in your home. And this is absolutely overwhelming statistically. A few other things, you know, we'd like to point out. Even though terrorism is such a big uh, thing in the headlines and we budget heavily for in our foreign policy and domestic policy, from 2005 to 2015, 71 Americans were killed in terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, while 301,797 were killed by gun violence in the same period. And although we talk about mass shootings a lot, it's still a very small percentage of overall gun deaths. So less than 2% of annual gun deaths would be a part of a mass shooting. And this is also a big deal because uh, more than twice a day, someone under 18 is shot and killed via a handgun. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an epidemic in our country. Uh, and gun sales are going way up. In fact, 8% of gun owners stockpile 10 or more weapons, which is, I know some people who have that many guns. It's, a, it's an interesting behavioral uh, thing that I don't quite have a finger on. Uh, and because there's so many guns that get stolen a lot and become a part of crime, and you know, meanwhile, it's pretty hard to get Congress to do anything about it. Now, uh, to give you some idea about how far out this puts the U.S. from the rest of the world, uh, no other wealthy Western country is even remotely in the same league of gun homicides per day, even adjusted by population. Uh, it's not It's not even close. So in the United States, you're about as likely to be killed by a gun as you are to have a car accident. If you look at other developed nations, it's, you know, in Canada, it, it's statistically similar to alcohol poisoning. In Ireland, it's similar to drowning in a lake, river, or ocean. The Netherlands, it's about as likely as accidental gas poisoning. In Germany, about as likely as contact with a thrown or falling object. In France, it's about as likely as hypothermia. In Austria, drowning in a swimming pool. In Australia, falling from a building or structure. Right? So these are similar uh, countries, wealth-wise and development-wise. Norway, it's about as similar as an accidental hanging or strangulation. Uh, These are all obviously very rare events, whereas for us, it's about like getting in a car accident, a really common way for human life to end. You see consistently, uh, when you talk about the not, the amount of guns, uh, if you plot gun deaths by state uh, with gun gun ownership by state, you're just going to find a really nice clean correlation with 50 data points that more guns does equal more gun deaths. And the same is true when you do that by country. You see, the U.S. is less than 5% of the global population, but owns 42% of the world's guns, which is one of the contributing factors for why we seem to have a completely unique relationship 
with gun violence. So when Australia reformed their gun laws and their gun culture, uh, mass uh, shootings plummeted. Uh, Gun rates also, uh, over time, appear to decline. Uh, More affected was the suicide rate. Suicide rate in Australia really dropped when they got rid of the guns. Gun advocates would point out that the uh, gun homicide rate uh, and the homicide rate in general was nowhere nearly as impacted as the suicide or mass shooting rate. Uh, And this is what I mean when things get complicated. Now, it's not that the U.S. has more crime. It does not. If you look at, you know, burglary, for example, we're, we're even in the developed world, uh, a pretty safe place. But what the U.S. is unique is in violent gun crime and suicides with a gun. Now, this is a really personal topic for me. Ask Science Mike very nearly does not exist because when I was a teenager, I put a shotgun in my mouth and tried to kill myself. And... Uh, thought the gun was loaded. It wasn't. I didn't know how to load it or I wouldn't be here. And this is why gun suicide is such a big deal in the United States. You don't get a lot of second chances when you try to kill yourself with a gun. Uh, Gun suicide has a, a haunting finality to it. Other forms of suicide, they're just not as lethal and uh, if people survive a suicide attempt, they're, they're relatively likely to just live the rest of their life. So how many lives have we lost, uh, people's own hands, from guns? So the data does seem to support an argument uh, that more guns creates more gun deaths. Now, as I mentioned, I have a lot of friends who have guns and love them, and I respect those people, but I just got to ask, like, When's enough going to be enough? How, how many toddlers need to shoot their parents? How many mass shootings? How many gun suicides? How many gun homicides have to happen in this country before we evaluate what the right to bear arms really means and how beneficial it is to our society? I don't want to oversimplify this narrative at all, and I've tried to point to some of the nuance, but our right to bear arms so easily has a huge cost in human life. Gun homicide for black males is a significant risk, especially gun suicide for white males is a really serious risk. And you have to think the Second Amendment was written with men in muskets in mind who recently overthrown an occupying government. (laughs) And they, they needed to be ready. They, they expected, you know, what if the U.S. government became as tyrannical as uh, they viewed the British government at the time? It's muskets. And in modern context, like your handgun, your shotgun, even your AR-15, if some part of the country declared total war on the U.S. government against tanks and drones and fighter jets and bombers... I just question the ability of a gun owner to hold off the federal government if it came to that. So for me, like enough is enough already. We've lost too many lives because guns are just too easy to have and we have too many and there's an economic incentive here. We're a major weapons manufacturer for the world and it produces wealth 
And man, if the U.S. loves anything, the U.S. loves wealth and money and power. So what would I do if I could go in and draft laws and get them pushed through the country? What would I do? I would immediately, I mean yesterday, lift the congressional research ban on guns and gun crime. I would want to spend federal dollars getting a better picture of what's happening so we can make better recommendations. Now, in the absence of that data, a couple of things make immediate sense to me right now. One, limit magazine size for assault weapons. If we can't ban them yet, okay, let's at least cut down the magazine size. Gives people higher survivability and it helps law enforcement stop people in mass shooter situations. The other thing I would say immediately, let's start licensing registering and requiring people to demonstrate safe gun storage in order to buy a gun. That's what other developed countries do. I'm not talking about confiscation yet. I'm not talking about a buyback. I'm talking about licensing, registration, and requirement to demonstrate safe gun storage. So we've already tried doing nothing, and it's not working. So can we try to do something? If we can't get to an Australia-style buyback, uh, Okay, what are the common sense things we can do? And can we tell our legislatures that we will not tolerate nothing? That we will not tolerate loyalty to the NRA over loyalty to a majority, an overwhelming majority of American citizens who want to see a change, right? Most Americans don't own a gun. And even many gun owners agree that we should have common sense legislation to slow the rate of guns entering society. Now, pro-gun voices often point out that reducing poverty and improving educational access would do far more to curb violent crime rates than gun legislation. And guess what? I completely agree. If we want to take on the mantle as a society of eliminating poverty and the educational gap based on income, absolutely I think that would be effective. But can we do both? Can we also embrace some common sense gun legislation and work to address poverty and education gaps in this country? How beautiful would that be? Finally, you you asked about the linkage with uh, mental health and mental illness and violent crime. This is Ask Science Mike. This is already a long answer for the the show. We'll probably return to this topic in more depth on the Liturgist podcast in the future. I wanted to know, let you know I heard the, that part of the question, but I just I don't have the time to dig in. This is already complex and uncertain enough. But I guess what I would say, most Americans agree. It's time to do something. And so to me, that's something, three points, Write your congressman, write your senator, call them, raise hell to lift the congressional research ban, to limit magazine size, and to create licensing, registration, and safe gun storage programs as a requirement for an American to buy a firearm. We've tried nothing, and it isn't working. So Congress, it's time to try something. Well, there's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. And uh, gun owners, don't click unsubscribe. 
Uh, I would much rather you write me and tell me what I missed than write me off. Okay. <laughs> and I, you know, I've had a lot of one-on-one topic discussions with many of you. And uh, frankly, the fact, uh, if you're a conservative gun owner who listens to ask science, Mike, you sound like a pretty interesting person. anyway. <laughs> so let's hang out and talk about it. Okay. A few things. One, we need questions, uh, kind of a weird trend. Uh, Listenership is going up right now. Uh, Ask Science Mike is more popular than it's ever been. But the number of questions coming in are going down. Now, we're in no danger of not having enough questions to put on a program. Uh, But it's just a strange trend. I don't know if it's summer, everybody's too busy at the beach, whatever. But send in your questions. You can use hashtag Ask Science Mike on Twitter or on YouTube or on SoundCloud. Uh, Or you can go to AskScienceMike.com and send a question directly to me via email or you can record a question and we'll play it back on the show Uh, by the way we get way fewer recorded questions so statistically you're much more likely to make it on the program if you do the voicemail style question than if you type a question okay there's that Uh, i want to thank the patrons for making the show possible people have dug really deep i appreciate it uh it's 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 getting me through the summer when there's less appearances uh so i appreciate that it it directly ties to, to me and my family's well-being so thank you for that if money's tight uh that's okay you can lower your pledge i've seen a lot of people do that lately and that's completely okay my vision is with as many people who listen to the show i'd love to see lots and lots and lots and lots of one two and five dollar a month people um so that less people are doing like 75 or 100 a month or some of those really generous folks like that and if money's so tight that you can't even throw a couple bucks that's no problem Head over to iTunes and rate the show or share an episode of the show on social media. That also helps us a whole lot. Uh, Andrew Galucky does our pre-production work and also organizes the Together groups. He's doing amazing work. Thank you, Andrew. Greg Nordine, as always, uh, weird scheduling, turns the show around fast. It sounds amazing. Thanks for producing Ask Science Mike. Greg and Jeb Botterford wrote and recorded performed everything the ask science my theme song if you need original music production jeff can do the same for you thanks for listening everyone and i can't wait to talk to you next week